rectify a wrong from two weeks ago. I said I loved the person, singular, that had made coffee. I was corrected. There was two people involved, one of whom works so far behind the scenes and never gets any credit. So thank the persons that made coffee. Seriously, love you guys more than anyone else here. So first of all, thank you for showing up um, on a Wednesday night. I know you got hectic schedules, but what this tells me is that the subject of human suffering, specifically of trauma, matters to you. Um, either you have experienced trauma or you love people that have experienced trauma, and probably both. And so thank you. Um, and I believe with all my heart that um, the conversation about trauma within the walls of the church and outside of the walls of the church by Christians is the heartbeat of God, um, is, is a pulse on one of the things that he's doing right now in the world. Um, I truly believe that. Um, because everywhere I go, it takes about five minutes for me to overhear a conversation or get into a conversation where someone is just raw with trauma. And, um, and so as we finish up some concepts from last week and then get into how we as a church and how we as individual Christians can um, not necessarily make disciples um, because, and we're going to get into this later, when, when we're dealing with people that are traumatized, the first thing we want to do is we want to restore dignity, right? We're not going to leverage the inequality of power to, we're not going to leverage their vulnerability to try to get them to become a Christian. That's not what this is about, right? We're going to love them into the kingdom, right? And one way that we can love them is to be trauma-informed so that when we are speaking to them and when we, are, when we are walking alongside of them and when we're serving them, that we can maybe understand their behaviors a little bit better, maybe understand their vantage point, understand where they're coming through. Um, but if we talk about trauma-informed discipling, and if I even use that phrase, what I'm not saying is that um, this is a means to another end. God wants to heal people. He wants to express his love to people. And yes, we want the body of Christ to grow. We want the family of Christ to grow. And we are hoping that everyone we ministered to in the realm of trauma will end up calling Christ Jesus Lord of their life. But we're not, going, we're not trying to leverage their pain. We're not trying to exploit their vulnerability. Cool, I needed to say that from the outset. Um, because this is a safe place. Um, and I want, it to, I want you to know that it's a safe place. Um, all right, so we're going to, like I said, we're going to clean up a little bit, um, finish up a little bit of last week because I got some feedback on a couple things. Guys, we're just scratching the most superficial surface of the monolith that is trauma, um, that is an understanding of how the brain works and how the brain uh, can go offline because of trauma. So, Again, it is literally impossible to do justice to even most of the subjects that we've touched. So we're just basically learning vocabulary and learning some basic concepts so that we can dig deeper. One of the things that we want to do, and Matt mentioned it, is we want to get your email address on that form for two reasons. We want to send out a survey, and we want to see what resonated with you. We want to see what parts of these sessions resonated the most loudly to you, and also we want to gauge what types of further trauma-informed uh, sessions, whether that be large group or smaller group, would be appropriate for you or someone that you love. And we want to understand what topics that you would like to uh, uh, dig deeper into. Um, and so... And then the second part of that would be, as Matt said, just a box that you can check or not check to just say, if you ever do anything at Good Shepherd, again, that involves trauma, I'd like to know. Um, it won't be part of the general email for Good Shepherd. It's just for, specifically for these trauma sessions. All right, so we're going to recap. Lightning speed. So the reason why we can have hope in 
in this conversation, the reason why we can have it in the church is because you are made in God's image. You are made for his glory. You are wonderfully and fearfully made. He made you with intention. Everything that happens inside of your body and inside of your mind is supposed to be a certain way, and it works perfectly when everything is perfect. And often things are not perfect, and that's why we're talking about trauma. But the fact that God made you a certain way and knows how he made you and made you with intent also means that he knows how to put you right. And so our hope rests in the power of God first and foremost. And also God gives humans a lot of wisdom to be able to help uh, people that have been injured, whether that be physically or mentally or emotionally. And so if you have a car accident, um, I wanna pray for a miracle as we're going to the hospital, right? Like, I don't wanna be stupid. And also I believe God can instantaneously heal people Um, but we're wise, right? And there are just certain things that we're not going to deal with. This isn't trauma counseling. This is uh, a session, a teaching session on trauma. If you have gone through a trauma and you are struggling deeply and you're having very macabre and dark thoughts, if you're having suicidal ideations, I would encourage you to, as quickly as possible, see a trauma-informed therapist, right? We're not playing around with this stuff. Um, And so I don't want you to think that we're making light of anything or we're trying to put some sort of spiritual platitude on this, we take this seriously. And also I believe in the power of the resurrection. And I believe that God can heal us and he will choose to do that in his own way. And sometimes that means walking alongside other people that have been hurt and walking together um, until we can run together along the narrow way towards him, right? So this was our definition, kind of our street-level definition of trauma. Trauma is a wound of the soul that occurs when an individual experiences an event or series of events so shocking, so violent, or so invasive that it overwhelms their normal coping mechanisms. Trauma starts as a physiological response to a threat, a threat to security, health, well-being, any part of the human whole. And again, this compelling drawing, it's like literally like you're looking at a photograph of the brain for anyone listening later. It's literally probably stands alone as one of the great pieces of artwork in all of history. Um, But it was the one image I found that I really thought uh, had just the information we needed. So we talked about the different major parts of the brain. um, And we talked about how when we experience a trauma that our amygdala, where our fear center is located, it is immediately stimulated. And we'll look at the next slide to to look at the fight or flight mechanism. But that is where trauma initially registers, right? Um, and, and then we've also, we also talked about how these other parts of the brain go offline during trauma. Um, and so we looked real quickly at just the basic fight or flight response. So the amygdala senses danger, you're walking along the Appalachian Trail, you're, you're licking a lollipop made of honey, and all of a sudden there's a bear that comes around the corner and he's like, I want that lollipop dead or alive, right? And your brain, before you even think about this is a bear, your amygdala has already sensed fear and it has already decided if it's going to run or if it's going to freeze or if it's going to fight, right? And so your amygdala releases hormones into your hypothalamus, your pituitary glands, and into your adrenal glands, which then shut down the higher functions of your brain. You're no longer thinking about bears. You're no longer thinking about the sky. You're no longer thinking about the flowers. You're thinking about surviving. And so all of a sudden, all of these hormones are released into your sympathetic nervous system. That's your, um, your epinephrine, which is, adrenal- which is adrenaline. It's your cortisol. It's your oxytocin. And then at that point, your body goes into action. Your sympathetic nervous system sends blood to your, to your fists so that you can fight or blood to your legs so that you can run. Your eyes dilate so that you can focus, right? Your body is ready for fight or flight. And so that's the basic overview of, of how the body responds to a traumatic situation. But I wanted to go back to triggers and stay here a little bit before we talk about disassocia- dissociation and before we talk about hypervigilance. Um, because I talked to a couple people after last session and... And there was sort of some, some common themes that were, were developing. The reason, so as we, look at, as we look at not just traumatic triggers, but as we go into 
dissociation and hypervigilance, what I want us to do is I want us to look inward and I want us to look outward, right? We're looking inward if we've experienced trauma and we're understanding what we went through. And we're looking outward because we want to begin to see other people and we want to be, begin to, to understand that these behavioral qualities that we see in them, though they might have started out as autonomic or, or, the, or that they may be something that people are, are choosing to do, they may have started out as autonomic, as instinctual responses to just surviving a trauma. And so we want to make sure that when we're dealing with people, that we're not automatically making surface value judgments, that we're making sure that we're discerning and maybe even as we get to know them, understanding that there's an underlying trauma that is, that is causing uh, some, of this, some of this behavior. So traumatic triggers are physical memories, the reminder of a trauma or an unsafe event that occurs when a person experiences through the senses a reminder of a similar experience at the time of the original trauma. We said that uh, neurons that fire together wire together. So when you experience a trauma, everything else that you're picking up, sensing, everything else that you're sensing on an unconscious level, your brain is processing at the same time, and it's very possible that those senses those sensations, those smells, those, those sounds, uh, those tastes um, can wire in your brain together with that trauma. And so that later on, when you experience a similar smell or a similar taste or a similar sound, that it produces the same sensation as the original trauma. Triggering creates the same bold and underlined mental and physical reaction as the original trauma in order to respond to the perceived danger. We talked about how the, the amygdala and the hippocampus both store memories, but your, but your amygdala stores memories, trauma memories, and, and, if, and if they're unresolved, then those memories supersede all other memories because your brain is perceiving that you are in danger again, and it is going to do whatever it takes to help you survive. And so you are experiencing possibly to the same degree of intensity, the, the original trauma when you were triggered by a memory. It is the same action as during the original trauma. The body prepares to respond to the danger, and in the brain, the same higher function areas become disconnected. That means when someone is triggered by something, even if you don't realize they're triggered, that means their prefrontal cortex can shut down. That means that they're their empathy and bonding skills can shut down. All of their creative urges, everything else in their brain can go offline. They, they're going into survival mode. And so if you see somebody that is experiencing a, a trigger and you're trying to give them a lot of direction or you're trying to make them look at something logically or you're trying to interact with them on an emotional level, they may not even be able to appreciate what you're doing. And so there, there's a lot of grace that's needed. The unconscious memories associated with your trauma when re-experienced cause the fear center of your brain to react as if you are in active danger. So that literally means someone can be sitting in a crowd like this where nothing is going on and everybody is safe and something can trigger them and they can panic like they are in active danger. That is how powerful the amygdala response is to, to fear and how a trigger can be as as powerful as the original trauma. So we talked about these are some of the responses to a traumatic situation, the physical and emotional troubles. These are some of the exact same responses if you've had a traumatic trigger. So people will continually get it locked into a cycle of having these physical and emotional troubles if they have unresolved trauma and if they continue to experience triggers, right? So imagine trying to live this way. Right? Imagine having every so often cyclically having a, a trigger that puts you back into the same cycle, right? There needs to be a lot of grace when we're dealing with other people who have experienced traumas. And there needs to be a lot of grace when you're dealing with yourself if you've experienced traumas. A lot of grace, okay? These are autonomic responses. So trauma then because of triggers becomes not an event, but a series of events, sometimes one protracted event. As I talked to a couple people last week, uh, they said that they could deal with the shock of the traumatic event that they experienced in the past, but it's the traumatic triggers that keep bringing it up and no longer is it a past thing, but it's a current thing, it's a daily thing. And because of that, it feels like it's a future thing. 
And so we talked about how neurons that fire together wire together. And so one of the things that um, neuroscientists and therapists are working on is ways to rewire the brain, right? And so there are um, some you know, practical things that you can do. You can create new rhythms. You can, you can have, um, you can create new sensations that align with, with certain responses. But the more severe your trigger is and the more severe your trauma, it may, it may need more than just some of those, those more um, practical solutions. And so two of the main things that are being done right now is EMDR, it's eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing, and brain spotting. Um, they're similar in a way because both of them um, involve the eyes. Uh, with EMDR, it involves the eyes uh, moving in response to certain stimulus, and then with um, brain spotting, the eyes are fixed. Um, but in each case, they are stimulating the brain in, a lot, in accordance with your traumatic memories, and then they are teaching your brain to rewire itself. Um, statistically, um, both have a, a high success rate. EMDR seems to be the one that more people know about, and it's maybe cheaper. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean it's better, and I'm not saying you should do these things, but I am saying that if you are someone that is struggling deeply with constant triggers, um, especially if you've had a PTSD diagnosis, that these might be something to look into. Um, one of the practical things that you can do is to write about it. Write it down, journal it, talk to somebody that's safe, get it out, right? Tell the story over and again so that you take power back over it, so that you get agency in it. Um, don't let it fester inside, but also don't force it out. Let it come out at its, you know, naturally, organically, and again, find a safe place that you can talk about it. If, if you have the resources to find a trauma-informed therapist, then I would encourage that too, because that's somebody who's going to really understand what it is that you're going through and look for look for aberrant signs. And then from a spiritual standpoint, um, when you have aberrant thoughts, when you have intrusive thoughts, in whatever capacity that you can, take captive that thought. Take captive every thought that would exalt itself against the knowledge of Christ and renew your mind with the water of the washing of the word. And I encourage you to do that no matter what else you're doing because I know that in the long run that that type of spiritual discipline is going to have lasting effect. Amen? So let's talk a little bit about dissociation. I hope you can read that. I know it's a little small. Um, thank you, Adam, for taking even smaller print and making it as big as you possibly could. Um, so dissociation is a disconnection between a person's thoughts, memories, feelings, and actions or sense of who he or she is. Disassociation, dissociation is one way the mind copes with a traumatic event. It can last for hours or days or much longer and even months. If it happens over a course of a long time, then it could be classified as a disorder. So you might have experienced a traumatic event. Let me just say it this way. I talked to a woman this weekend who had experienced a traumatic event as a, as a younger woman and many years had lived as if it didn't happen. Um, there was a, she had dissociated from it. She literally did not even, she literally could not even recall memories of it. Her brain had disassociated because, dissociated because it was the only way that her brain perceived that she was going to be able to cope with the negative after effects of that trauma. And so her brain dissociated. Um, and so she lived for years a fairly balanced um, life. And yet there were these signs, these physical and emotional signs that something was underlying and she didn't understand what the root of it was until she realized that she had experienced a trauma. So dissociation can look like, and again, I want us to think inwardly. I want us to say, hey, you know what? I've experienced these things, but I also want us to look outwardly and say, you know what? I see this in my neighbor. I see this in, in my loved one that has experienced trauma, or I see this... Um, in, in people in my community or in my church, and I wonder if they haven't experienced some trauma. So it can look like eye contact being broken, the conversation comes to an abrupt halt, a person can look frightened or spacey or emotionally shut down. They often report feeling disconnected from the environment as well as their body sensations that can no longer accurately gauge the passage of time. It can look like escapism, wishful thinking, daydreaming. It doesn't have to look like this, but it can look like this. 
burying one's emotions, self-isolation, lowering voice when speaking, leaving gatherings early, and canceling plans last minute. Okay, so there's two things I want to say. Well, first, I already said it. It doesn't have to look like this. Those things may just be you are just literally like the poster child for being an introvert, right? Like that's okay also. But dissociation can be something that is autonomic and instinctual and, it can, and then it can become learned behavior, right? If your body processes that, that living in an escapist world or is, is, what is, keep, is what is helping you cope the most, then you will begin to do those things by virtue of habit. Um, you'll begin to trend toward isolation if that's the only place that you feel safe. And you'll, be able to, you'll begin to make conscious decisions to self-isolate, even if you don't understand the instinctual urge to do so. Dissociation can look like procrastination, making up excuses to avoid attending a party social gathering, or we can just call that family, right? Awkwardness of family, right? Thanksgiving, right? Um, not answering calls or text, avoiding certain places at certain times, avoiding eye contact, and then, of course, drug and alcohol use is probably one of the most uh, severe types of dissociation that can be harmful. So when you look at this list and you see yourself on this list, the first thing that I want you to do is, again, as we've said before, to release yourself from the shame of it, right? If you, if you are living in a cycle of coping and you're dissociating or you're making choices to, to protect yourself, that is a normal response to trauma. It doesn't mean you have to live there forever, but you don't need to add onto the weight of that trauma shame, okay? Shame and condemnation come from the devil, right? If you were in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. Right, So I want to remove the stigma of shame from, from certain behaviors. And I also, again, I want us to destigmatize talking about these things. How cool is it that we're talking about these things in a church? I want us to destigmatize talking about mental health. I want us to destigmatize talking about anxiety and depression. I want us to destigmatize talking about the things that have wounded us, right? Because until we talk about them, until the light uh, is able to shine in those dark places, we're going to find it hard to find healing. So let's talk about hypervigilance. So we're going to look at a slide, but hypervigilance is, it can, you know, it can be in degrees, but if you think about it as being stuck in a state of fight or flight, that is probably the easiest way to picture hypervigilance. It refers to the experience of being in a state of high alert, constantly tense and on guard, and always on the lookout for hidden dangers, both real and presumed. It's stressful and exhausting to maintain. When you think about yourself, that's exhausting to maintain. When you think about people that you love that are hypervigilant, think about how exhausting it is for them to maintain that state of high alert and extend grace this state of increased awareness, anxiety, and sensitivity to the environment around you often manifests itself as a need to always scan your surroundings for potential threats. With the brain's resources on constant alert, the results can be inappropriate or even aggressive reactions in everyday situations. When your brain processes are uh, in constant alert, then again, your other brain processes go offline. If your body is constantly looking for threats and you're constantly in a state of survival, then everything else that makes life wonderful and good and artistic and beautiful will go offline. Again, your ability to, to bond and to have empathy may be severely arrested. Your ability to create, your ability to interact normally, your ability to think logically may be severely arrested by being stuck in a hypervigilant state. And so again, if we just kind of look at um, a normal range of behavior, you have the original arousal activation from a perceived threat, you have the traumatic event, and then at some point you settle back down to your baseline. But if you're stuck in fight or flight, then you stay in that heightened state of awareness where it's always as if the trauma event is, is actually occur occurring in real time constantly. This can make people uh, ignore their family and friends around them because literally they're, they're, they're focused on threats. Often they will overreact to loud sounds and bangs, unexpected noises, smells, etc. They can get really agitated and irritated. 
especially when in crowded or noisy area and, and there's too much to analyze. So maybe you're talking to a friend and you realize like um, there's just kind of some elevated background noise and, and there's some other stuff going on and you, you just kind of notice that they're starting to feel more and more unease. It would be very appropriate for you to say, hey, things are getting loud and chaotic in here. Let's just, let's just take a walk. Let's just go somewhere quiet, right? Give them a gentle out. Let them, without having to say to you that they need a place where they're not overstimulated, give them a place where they're not overstimulated, right? It's as simple as that. Hypervigilance can make safe situations and people feel threatening. Safe situations feel threatening. Remember, trauma is not only about actual threat, but it's also perceived threat. And even familiar surroundings and people can be an issue as hypervigilance can make people acutely aware of subtle details normally ignored. Body language, a person's voice, a tone, their mood, their expressions, all things which are continually assessed. So maybe you have a friend or maybe you're the person that whenever somebody is like, you know, doesn't greet you with a smile, but usually they do, you're immediately thrown into like emotional turmoil and you're like, hey, is everything okay? Are you all right? You want to make sure that everything is okay because you're constantly assessing for threat. If they're not okay, then maybe something behind them is not okay. Like maybe there's a threat that they're experiencing and I need to work, worry about that threat too, right? You're constantly looking for things that aren't necessarily there. Often hypervigilance affects sleep. Someone may be too afraid to fall asleep, and when they do, the smallest noise can fully wake them up, and the surge of adrenaline can make it very difficult to get back to sleep. This interruption in sleep patterns can further exacerbate hypervigilance and can also lead to states of paranoia. Um, and I think that that would probably be on the far end of hypervigilance, but it will at some point, if unregulated and undealt with, it can lead to... Um, to paranoid behavior, just as severe dissociation can look like blackouts. Um, I was, I was um, uh, on the field one time, and there was a person that had experienced a, a, a relatively intense trauma, and it was relatively new, and someone was talking to them about it, and they, they just went into a, um, a psychogenic blackout. They, they literally started to shut down, um, started to blackout, Tunnel vision became, blurred vision became just a, a field of darkness closing around them. Their body started to posture like they were dying. They weren't dying, but they started to pull in like this. Um, their breathing got really slow and shallow. So that, that's a severe case of their body literally just trying to dissociate as far as possible from that pain. Hypervigilance can look like a lack of objectivity, over and awareness, perpetually scanning your environment, looking for others to betray you constantly. Guys, like, think about people that you know and love. Think about your own behaviors. Think about maybe some of your past relationships in the way that you were always expecting that person to betray you. Is it possible that part of that was hypervigilance due to unresolved trauma? Release yourself from the shame of that, okay? Not being aware of what is obvious to others, appearing jumpy, jittery, and I'm unable to sit still. still. A reluctance to try new things or meet new people. Again, let us extend grace to people and let us look at them with a trauma-informed lens and let us be careful that when we see these behavioral patterns that we don't automatically assume the worst about someone or maybe we automatically assume that they're just choosing to be this way. Let's be sensitive to the fact that it could be an underlying unresolved trauma that is causing these behavioral manifestations. Hypervigilance can look like an inability to have conversations because you're distracted and unable to focus, a creation of obsessive patterns or obsessive avoidance of perceived, perceived threats, constantly concerned about others. That seems kind of counter, counterintuitive, but like I said before, someone that is always trying to make sure everyone's okay, they're just trying to make sure that there's no danger that they haven't seen. Adrenaline-induced physiological symptoms, we talked about that before. If you're in a state of a hypervigilance, you are perceiving an active threat, and so your pupils are going to be dilated, your pulse is going to be elevated, blood is going to be flowing to your extremities, and you are going to be uh, dumping hormones into your system, and it can cause you to have jitters, it can cause you to have stomach issues. Um, So we already looked at the slide, I think, but I want us to look at it again. These are the major short-term and long-term impacts of trauma. 
I want us to remember that when we walk out in public, when the teller at the bank or the kid behind the counter at Taco Bell or the person that cuts you off in traffic is being overly aggressive, irrationally so, that we're reacting to them with love and patience and kindness and gentleness and grace because they literally may be manifesting unresolved trauma. Long term, when we look at people with depression and anxiety, we can often treat it as if it is something that they just need to choose to get out of. If you'll just make a couple life choices, if you'll just eat better, if you'll just exercise more, then your depression will start to clear up. That may give them an artificial high for a little bit, but if their depression or their anxiety is rooted in unresolved trauma, then you're just treating a symptom. We want to make sure that we are dealing with the underlying things. When we disciple someone along spiritual matters, we don't just treat the superficial things. Discipleship is getting down to the nitty-gritty, right? It is getting deep about our motives. The, Bible, the, the Word of God says that, 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 that Scripture is a, is a sword that goes even to the thoughts and intents, Right? God cares as much about the motives as he does the actions, and probably more so, right? And so we want to get down to the nitty-gritty. Anybody like Nacho Libre? Does anybody love Nacho Libre? Is this, the nitty-gritty, I love it. So I want us to, again, as we see people in our lives, as we see ourselves in the mirror, as we see ourselves behaving irrationally at times, as we see behaviors that seem aberrant, seem out of character for us or someone that we love, I want us to extend, extend grace. And I want us to remember that there could be something else going on below the surface that we know nothing about. And we should be very, very patient and very wise and very prayerful and very discerning. Anybody know what that is? Ugh. God has planted you guys in a very fertile zone for post-traumatic people that have been traumatized by events. And it's probably only a matter of time before we have another ugly storm. But the point is, is that your neighbors, many of your neighbors, um, maybe some of the people that sit in these pews on Sundays, they're still dealing, dealing with the after effects of Hurricane Katrina, right? Like, it's something that we all experienced, and so on a visceral level, we can connect with them. And we know that um, maybe even some of you experienced short-term um, behavioral changes, or maybe you saw it in your children. Maybe there was regressive behavior in some of your children, um, and it was just the way that they were coping with the acute stress of a, of a c catastrophe of that nature. In the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, PTSD rates in New Orleans um, and in the greater New Orleans area were over 17%. That means... For six to nine months after the event, people were still experiencing post-traumatic symptoms at the same level as the initial effect. And at that point, it would be classified as a disorder. Suicide rates were five times higher in that same area. There were a lot, there's already limited mental health resources, but in the aftermath of something so catastrophic like Katrina, so many things went offline. People weren't able to get their medications, right? We talked about pre-existing conditions. People that were taking something for their mental health now were trying to go out of major trauma without the medication that was helping them get through the day. So we need to walk carefully, and we need to walk graciously, and we need to walk with compassion and empathy. I love this quote. I wish I had written this quote. If I ever um, go to another planet and I know that they're never going to talk to this planet, I'm going to claim that this quote is mine. <laughs> but um, no, but seriously, I love, I love this quote. Um, and I think that this really is a filter that we can see um, trauma-informed um, relationships through. Trauma decontextualized in a person over time can look like personality. Trauma decontextualized in a family over time can look like family traits. It can look like Thanksgiving. <laughs> Trauma decontextualized in a people over time can look like a culture. Wow. All right, so we are going to speed through this last bit. Um, we're going to go a little long tonight because we want to wrap up everything good, and, and Matt, Matt said for, to make sure that we did that. Um, so again, when we talk about trauma-informed disciple-makers, what we're talking about in general when we're talking about making disciples is first making friends. 
being a good neighbor, coming alongside people that are struggling, right? The first thing that Jesus did was what? The very first thing he did. I mean, the first thing he did on earth. Well, the first thing he did, <laughs> the first thing he did in the New Testament, with the exception of the first part of the Gospel of John. But the first thing that Jesus did in the other Gospels, he was born a baby. Incarnationally, God became flesh. The first thing that you got to do is show up. Jesus showed up. The first thing that you got to do for people in your life that you love that are experiencing trauma or the, or, or the effects of unresolved trauma is show up. Don't show up with an agenda except for to love. For God so loved the world that he gave Jesus so that he could make disciples of all men. That's not exactly what it says, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believe in him will have everlasting life. We want people to have everlasting life, right? But we want it to start now. We want it to start to experience vitality and life now, right? And so we don't want to go in with an agenda of checking a box of trying to make a disciple here. <laughs> You're trying to love them. And you're expressing the love of God and it's his kindness and it's his gentleness that'll bring them to repentance. And the best way for, him, for people to experience the invisible God's kindness and gentleness is through visible people. Everybody here visible? Okay, just checking. All right. The church is uniquely qualified and supernaturally empowered like no other institution on earth to meet the needs of the traumatized to bring healing. Why is that? Because... A, we're being daily made into the image of Christ and he's the best person that ever existed, right? And he knows exactly what everybody's gone through. And also we are empowered by the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, the same spirit that freed demoniacs and that healed the invalids and that raised the dead. We have that spirit in us as the church. And so we are uniquely qualified like no other institution on earth. No other institution on earth has the Holy Spirit in them but the church. The trauma-informed Christian who is acquainted with suffering themselves pulls discerningly from those experiences and their speech is tempered with the memory of that pain. Y'all, if we're not real about our own suffering, when you suffer and when you're real about your suffering, that gives you currency in other people's lives. That gives you permission to speak about these things in other people's lives. And that's so important. It's so, so important that our speech is tempered with the kind of compassion and empathy that comes from understanding what trauma does to people, maybe did to us or did to someone that we love or is still actively doing to someone we love. We want to be tempered by that Holy Ghost-informed, Holy Ghost-inspired Compassion. The trauma-informed Christian, the trauma-informed church has the spirit of Christ in them, the spirit of the man of sorrows. They can communicate from miraculous and unique understanding of suffering that comes from our spirit being filled by God's spirit. The Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth. He will give us wisdom in situations that we have no business speaking into, but yet somehow, miraculously, the gift of a word of wisdom or the word of knowledge comes forth and we're able to speak in a way that connects with them on a level that they didn't even know they needed because the same spirit that moved Christ with compassion when he saw the brokenness of the world is in you. And we should be like Jesus. It literally says that he was moved in his inward parts. It literally means his, his insides were just churning because he was viscerally connected to their suffering. He wasn't immune to it, and we shouldn't be either. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Last week at the end, Bethany closed with this, and I told Matt later that I was like sitting there going, I really want to say the scripture. Um, and then she did. And, and as I was listening to her, the Holy Spirit reminded me that we are a royal priesthood. So we follow Christ in his example as our high priest. We follow him as his royal priesthood, doing the same work that he did in the realm of human weakness. This is about to get personal for a minute. Um, so when caregivers, authority figures, and spiritual leaders are the perpetuators of trauma, trust for institutions can be seriously undermined. 
So you might, you might get a little resistance if you say to one of your friends, hey, you should come to my church. We talk about trauma a lot. They're going to be like, I'm not going to church, right? Yeah. Don't say that. Don't say that exact phrase like that. But, but my point is, is uh, probably half of the people that I care about most in my life have been seriously traumatized by church, have been seriously spiritually abused by church. Uh, maybe they just flock to me because of the way I look. But I'm telling you guys, you all know people in your life that have been chewed up and spit out by institutional religion. Uh, they have been wounded, and they don't want to step back a foot into, um, into the church, into the church building. Um, my hair is always fighting this thing. So that doesn't just mean spiritual institutions. That can be police institutions. It can be the court system. There, are, there is a, a, a checkered history with our country if you were not of a certain color at certain times in our history where the institutions did not work for you, they were not built to protect you. They were built to protect someone whose skin was a lot paler than you. So when you talk about the church, you know, um, ordaining these institutions and when, you, and when you allow your political platform or when you allow your, your political agenda to, to be joined with your gospel presentation, then you're going to find that you betray trust with people who don't find those institutions are trustworthy. We need to be careful that we are not mixing the gospel with anything else that has baggage, right? Because the church has, a lot of, has enough baggage of her own. She's been complicit in a lot of things over the years. I remember as a kid uh, reading the biography of Harriet Tubman and other abolitionists, and I loved them deeply, and those were my heroes. And I remember not being able to comprehend how people that would get behind a pulpit on Sunday mornings would be underneath a white hood on Saturday nights. And yet, we bear the scars of that in Mississippi. I've walked around northern Mississippi, and I've seen the signs, and I've seen the, the, the commemorative plaques where you know, we're in the 60s where people were murdered because they were speaking out against racism, right? So we've got to be careful that when we're talking about um, the church, when we're talking about the institution of the church, that we understand it has a lot of baggage. And we're honest about that, right? And also we're simultaneously creating a safe place and we're trying to be a church that dis distances themselves from any type of behavior that would even resemble um, that kind of evil when we use words like Father God, family of Christ, even words such as home, they can feel unsafe for the traumatized and they can be triggering. If your trauma has come at the hands of your mother or your father, or if it happened in your home, those words may never be safe um, or may have never been safe for you. And so when we start to use those terms that are so common to the scriptures and so important, we, they also can, can, can put up a block between us and the person we're trying to minister to. So we need to be cognizant of that. We need to, be, we need to, to, to understand, to be discerning. And also, ultimately, we want them, if they've had a horrible father or a father that traumatized them, we also want them to experience the fatherhood of God. That's the ultimate trajectory, right? But the way that it gets there will look different for each one of them, and we need to, be, we need to just walk gently with them. Fear. So we said that most trauma involves a feeling of helplessness and fear. Helplessness is a feeling of having no power, no agency, and no voice. And we said that's why children are especially um, vulnerable to situations be being traumatic. Fear preys upon the helpless, and long-term control through fear is deeply traumatizing. I talked to a young woman a couple weeks ago, and it was just kind of one of those aha moments for me that just made me stop in my tracks. And to, just for time's sake, I'll shorten it down. But she said, you know, I, 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 was, um, I lived as an addict for a while. And I said, no, I didn't know that. And, and she said, no, God, God really delivered me out of that. And, she, and, and I said, was there, and this is someone I know, so it was an appropriate conversation. She instigated it. And I said, you know, do you know why? Do you know why you started using? And she says, oh, yeah, I know why. And she said, my childhood was deeply traumatizing. And... Um, and I said, you know, I was just, again, very careful because I wasn't trying to ask probative or invasive questions, so I just kind of left it hang out there. And she said, I grew up in a family who every single day told me that if I sinned, I was going to hell. 
And they constantly talked about the anger and the wrath of God. And, and my entire concept of God was that he was literally waiting for me to screw up so that he could punish me. And I lived in such a state of fear that it began to permeate everything in my life. I was afraid of everything. And so at the point where I could get out from underneath the, the, that thumb, just, she just began to self-medicate. You know, she just began to take the edge off of that intolerable fear that she was experiencing. There is a way that we communicate the gospel, not just with the traumatized, but with everybody. It's God's kindness that draws them to repentance, right? It's the love of God that compelled him to give his son. There are appropriate times to have conversations about sin and about hell. There are appropriate times to have conversations about the wrath of God, but that is not where we start. Not and literally unless somebody's in their last breath, you know, like unless the Holy Spirit is saying, say this, and you're seeing it in neon letters and you're just reading it, it's not where we start, right? I always joke, like if I'm introducing someone to my wife, the first thing I don't say is, hey, this is my wife Hannah, and um, whew, she's got a temper, so don't ever make her mad, right? Like, I would never say, like, and that's not true. Well, it's a little true now. It's not true. But I would never say the worst thing about the person that I'm supposed to love, right? Like, I wouldn't say the worst thing about them. So then why would I walk up to somebody, a stranger on the street, and say, if you died today, do you know where you would go? Um, well, um, I, um, okay, so... I guess if I'm, if I'm technically dead, then maybe I would still go to the hospital or maybe straight to the, to the morgue? I don't know. Is this a trick question? I don't know what you're talking about, right? Well, well let me back up. If you died today and you didn't know Jesus, would you, would, where would you go? Okay, I still think I would go to the morgue. Is this a trick question? <laughs> Who's Jesus? So like, if you need to give them more information, if you need to back up and give them more information, then maybe you need to back up some more, okay? Maybe you just need to keep backing up and run. <laughs> but if you are giving someone the gospel, give them the gospel, give them the good news, right? And especially so if they've been traumatized, tread lightly, right? There are appropriate conversations to have about sin, but many traumatized people are locked in a cycle, a hopeless cycle of medicating, of coping, of treating their trauma with sinful things, and they're just surviving. Tread lightly, tread compassionately, right? Don't go in pulling up the weeds because you'll get the good seed too, right? Jesus said that way above my pay grade. So here's a few ways the church can intervene. First and foremost, pray. If you want to help people that have experienced trauma, pray. It is spiritual warfare. Pray, intercede. It is not for the faint of heart because it is messy, just like all discipleship is messy. But helping people through their trauma can be extremely messy, especially if it's complex trauma, especially if it's been unresolved for many years. Create a safe place. That's what we're doing here. We're talking about it. We're naming it. We're giving each other the words to be able to speak about it in a safe place. And we're saying, you can come here and you can be real about it. So we're creating a safe place. We're developing trauma-informed skills. Again, we're just scratching the surface. We've just started to even learn some of these concepts. Dig deeper. There's, so, there's just a wealth of knowledge out there now. I encourage every one of you to read Suffering in the Heart of God by Diane Lamberg. Read The, the Body Keeps the Score and explain some of that to me when you read it. Um, read The Little Book of Trauma Healing by Carolyn Yoder. It's incredible, tiny book with a great overview of trauma. But dig in deeper. Learn about trauma. Learn about what trauma looks like so that you can be a better friend, a better family member, so that you can heal yourself. And know when you're out of your depth. I never attempt to do trauma counseling with anybody. I do not have any letters after my name that mean anything. Any letters after my name that I claim to have, I put there myself. <laughs> I have not graduated anywhere that would give me any letters, right? I'm not a counselor. We are not counselors unless that is what you do for a living. We're not trying to counsel people. We, we need to know when we're out of our depth. And one of those things, if people are having very morbid thoughts, if they're having chronic depression that is on a downward slope, if they're having suicidal ideations, you encourage them to reach out to a professional that understands that behavior as a result of unresolved trauma. And you do so in a way where you're consistent with them so that you make sure they're getting the help that they need. Know when you're out of your depth. 
The traumatized are especially vulnerable to satanic devices. One of the things that traumatized people deal with all the time are intrusive thoughts. That is where the devil loves to play and stay. He loves to throw those fiery darts. He loves to accuse. He loves to condemn. And he will latch on to those intrusive thoughts. Trauma of the mind can be the devil's playground. And so that is why it is so important that we are actively engaged in spiritual warfare, interceding, putting a protective hedge around the people that we're trying to care for. The traumatized almost always experience some of the following. Loss of faith, diminished participation in religious or spiritual activities, changes in belief, feelings of being abandoned or punished by God, and loss of meaning and purpose for living. I need you to hear this. When we're dealing with traumatized people who are also our brothers and sisters in Christ, we're not going to make value judgments on their faith. We're not going to make value judgments on the strength of their faith. We're not going to say, but you used to, or I remember when, or don't you remember what God did? They're struggling possibly with some of these things. They may very well feel abandoned by God. And the elephant is in the room is that many people are wondering, God, why didn't you stop this from happening to me? Right? So let us tread lightly. Let us be filled with grace and mercy. Let us understand what they might be going through and let us not make rash judgments. Um, our primary goal in life is to honor God. And the way that we primarily honor God is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. And what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love them if they're traumatized the same way you would want them to love you if you were the one experiencing the ravages of trauma. Remember that there is an inequality of power. If you are the person in the relationship that has some semblance of wholeness, if you're not actively struggling with the after effects of trauma, then you have more power, you have more agency, you have more control over your own life. And there's an inequality of power. You're offering help. Don't exploit that. Again, we're not trying to, to make disciples first. We're trying to honor God first. And the way that we honor God first is by loving our neighbors as ourselves and by restoring dignity where it's been stolen for them, from them. Treat people as precious. Serve them to the cross. Amen? Amen. I think that's it. Um, before you leave tonight, if you haven't, please put your, uh, your, your email on that form. Um, and um, and we'll, like Matt said, in the next couple of days, we'll, we'll get a survey out to you. Thank you, guys.